Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? It's Corey from Best Served. This podcast is a clubhouse recording of an exclusive interview with Emmy and four-time James Beard Award-winning TV host, chef, author, humanitarian, and social justice advocate, Andrew Zimmer. He shares his life lessons and his journey towards redemption. Hope you enjoy. Uh, Very much looking forward to today's show. It's definitely one that's been in the calendar for a while. A lot of hard work and effort going into this one. But this, the guest today, Chef Andrew Zimmern, is going to be a real treat for Clubhouse today. Something that, um, I don't know, I don't know if if people have their own expectations, but uh, I certainly know this is going to be off the charts. So very much looking forward to this. So, Andrew, you had a busy day today? I did. Uh, I was, uh, I've been away working um, and, uh, and traveling and squeezed a few days out to go fishing with one of my best friends and, and his son. And nice. I am, you know, and then back to the grind on Monday, yesterday. And one of the things that I, I found is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, I just, I find culture either, you know, whether it's 10,000 years old or 10 hours old, absolutely equally fascinating. And one of the things that I, I, I found most fascinating about being away for two weeks is that over the course of that two and a half weeks, it's like all of a sudden people felt like the world was open again, you know? And yes. on, on one hand, I applaud this new optimism. I want this new op- optimism. I, I, I feel our food community needs that new optimism. There are still so many people, marginalized communities who are still hurting so bad, entire countries on the far side of the planet uh, that are struggling to uh, come to grips with uh, a different phase of the uh, of the C-19 pandemic. So it's just, it's hard to reconcile. Here in my little bubble in, in Minneapolis, things are good but we still don't have any enthusiasm for people going back into our downtown. Businesses aren't back. It's a very strange thing to see other cities so engaged in this optimism and doors are open and things are a little more cautious and I, from the consumer side here. So yeah, that's been puzzling. First act is your beginning years of cooking. And the second act is your addiction years and we're gonna move into your third act your sobriety years. Tell us more about that time. Like, how did you break into the restaurant business beginning of your cooking career? I find the phase of my life represented by your question to be really fascinating because historically, I don't think a lot of people are aware of sort of what food was like in the late 70s and early 80s when I started to professionalize. Um, My my father told me, the summer that I turned 14, which was 1975, uh, my dad told me, no more allowance, go get a job. So all my friends were working in um, uh, landscaping companies out in Long Island, uh, which I never understood because you were like wheelbarrowing around tons of, you know, soil and building berms and, 
you know, as teen laborers sort of doing the worst part of the job, and you were missing the best part of summer, which was, you know, beach, girls, weed, beer, you know. Um, and so I begged my parents to let me work in a restaurant. I, I had some skill as a cook. Um, I had, you know, learned uh, how to cook and garden from my parents and how to forage. And, you know, my dad taught me how to shuck clams and oysters when I was like six years old. So, I mean, I was pretty speedy and pretty good. Um, and I knew that I could, I could chop vegetables and wash dishes. And, you know, I knew an, an entry-level job in a restaurant I, I, I knew I could handle. Um, and I begged my way into a seafood restaurant on the Montauk Highway in East Hampton, Long Island called uh, The Quiet Clam. And uh, I worked there uh, summers uh, during uh, high school um, and absolutely loved it. Loved everything about it. I mean, restaurants, love affair really solidified uh, when I started working in them because I found a crew of crazy misfits that were just like me that were devoted to the, the theater of the evening. You know, five o'clock, curtain goes up. Eleven o'clock, curtain goes down, and you start again the next day and perform the same play. The food was very exciting in the mid '70s. People were just getting turned on to it. I mean, you have to remember, there was no balsamic vinegar in New York until a couple of years later, when the Italian government and the United States government reached a, uh, a, a basically an import tax. Uh, agreement that allowed Italian goods to come into New York um, and America at a at at a cheaper rate. So all of a sudden, in the late seventies, things exploded with Italian ingredients in the marketplaces. Um, we didn't have uh, food markets like what would become, you know, your Dean and DeLuca's and Balducci's and these sort of prepared food meccas. We had tiny little postage stamp sized uh, stores like the Silver Pallet on the Upper West Side of, of New York. And by the end of the 70s, we had giant 15,000 square foot markets, nothing like the size of Italy, but there wouldn't be an Italy if it wasn't for these small little markets that bloomed in the 70s. Um, the first sushi, I, I'm from New York City, hence the constant references to New York. There were no uh, sushi bars uh, in New York. Uh, in 1970. I, I think the first one came in 72 or 73. Um, the, uh, the Nixon Kissinger uh, cultural pact that was part of the detente with the People's Republic of China resulted in visas. The first visitors from China over here to America were the Chinese acrobats. The second visitors were dozens of Chinese chefs that brought regional Chinese cooking uh, first to New York and LA, and then it spread to the interior. So up until the mid seventies, you really only had Cantonese food being served in New York city uh, or anywhere else for that matter, except in very small, small, small pockets tucked away in the middle of, of, of somewhere that most people don't have access to. Um, but then it exploded and a restaurant in New York that opened in 74, 75, Uncle Tai's Hunan Yuan brought cuisine from three different Chinese provinces that had never been uh, cooked in the city before. So we were, we were around and eating and I was working in restaurants during the late 70s when my city turned from, you know, a, a, 
a good food city to a global powerhouse of a food city, and things just kept exploding uh, throughout the go-go 80s. Um, in, in restaurants, although it, to be honest, I don't remember a lot of the 80s. Um, it's my, I call it my missing decade. I did some of my best work uh, during the uh, 80s. I had done a lot of crazy shit when I was young. So, you know, if you wanna feel self-esteem, you gotta do esteemable acts. So when I, you know, shucked a dozen oysters and put them on a icy platter and I saw it cross the room and you could see someone take the first oyster and appreciate that it was well shucked and you could see it in their eyes and then slurp it off the shell and flip the shell over and return it to the, to the bed of ice and kind of shake their head looking at the other person, ooh, yum, or clams or whatever it is that I was in charge of making that night. Uh, the self-esteem that I felt from that, the rush, the exhilaration of making someone happy, um, and it, well, it was, it was it was like a drug. I became addicted to it. Uh, and certainly I've had my issues with codependency. So making other people happy was right in my wheelhouse. When I first started cooking, I was already an addict and alcoholic. Um, I just didn't have as many consequences yet and I hid it better. By the time I got sober, um, things were <laughs> pretty crazy in my life. Uh, they had decompensated uh, almost to, you know, resulting in my wiping away my existence on planet Earth. My, my next sober anniversary, I'll be 30 years sober uh, in five more months. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm not quite 60 years old. So, you know, I've spent half my life in sobriety. Brain drain. I think that's gonna be short-lived. Um, I also think the 110,000 number is, it's gonna be more like 200,000 when all is said and done. We have uh, $29 billion in the Restaurant Relief Fund. We, they stopped taking applications when they had hit $65 billion in need. Um, I think there's gonna be a whole other group of restaurants that are not gonna be able to afford to wait. Um, and they don't have the money to get up and operating and they're saddled with so much debt that I, I'm afraid we're gonna see more closings. Um, and I think the, the brain drain, uh, there are gonna be some people that are gonna to wanna to go into other industries, but I think it's gonna be short-lived because I think over the next 18 months, the food sector is gonna come around assuming that there's not a, a massive recession or depression. Um, I, think the food, I, I, I think the food sector is gonna come around. I also think that if you take away, we'll just pick a number, 25% of restaurants and we lose 25% of people coming into them, it's, it's, it's a fluid exchange. Um, does make me happy, uh, matter of fact, it crushes me. Um, because I believe in the power of restaurants as small businesses to such a vital part of our cultural fabric, especially on Main Street in the middle of America. Yeah. You find as well, we're in the service industry, right? So we're, yep. we're constantly serving others. Yep. And when it comes to ourselves, we never put the time in. That's right. You find that's an issue? Well, the balance with all things, right? I can only tell you that I had a life or death illness, right, um, that almost killed me. And so um, do I need to put on my own oxygen mask first? Fuck yes. Um, and, and, and I need to make sure I get my sleep and I take care of me. And quite frankly, you know, I'm a dad. So my very first obligation is to my child, who I'm responsible for. 
Um, and, and then I turned my attention to other people. And taking care of yourself and putting your own oxygen mask on and taking time for you is not in contradiction to living a life predicated on service work. I would encourage people to read the writings of, uh, of Thomas Merton, M-E-R-T-O-N. Uh, it's absolutely brilliant. He talks about this, uh, this kind of stuff a lot. Um, I think that it's super important to recognize that, you know, it, you know, look, I'm assuming a lot of people here on this, uh, in this room know who Danny Meyer is. And, you know, he famously was the one who said, look, the customer doesn't come first. The team comes first. We come first. The, the staff comes first. The people who work in my restaurant come first, because if I don't put them first, then we have nothing to give away. And it's the same thing that we talk about in the recovery world, right? You have to, you, you know, Mimi talked about my artillery. You have to build up your own uh, resources before you have anything to give away. I mean, I, I tell guys that I mentor all the time, uh, how can you give something away if you don't have it, right? Got to build it for yourself. I get deals all the time. Uh, more people should go out of I mean, The only thing that I've uh, done so far is put my name on a spice uh, line that I created, tested. They're fantastic. We use a lot of dehydrated uh, citrus and shallot and chilies and other things that I use to season my food as opposed to fake versions of them. Um, I'm lucky enough to work with the Badia company. Um, it's been very hard because of COVID because a, a lot of supermarket change and, and uh, retailers just didn't want to add any spice lines uh, to their company. We came out right before COVID. Um, so, uh, you know, spread the love, badiaspices.com. Um, the, the problem with uh, CPG moves for me is that in exchange for a small amount of money, everybody wants uh, my name and likeness. And because the most valuable thing that I have are my television contracts, we can't do that. Um, so it's hard to find someone who wants to be a real partner. Margins are very thin in the CPG space in a lot of things. And um, where we are looking right now is in uh, uh, cooking devices. And let's just say that uh, there's a lot of stuff that's out there right now, but I've seen so many things that are popular around the world that just aren't made and being utilized in American kitchens. And I think there's a space there uh, that I'm gonna creep into. Um, CPG, so many people want me to slap my name on a bag of beef jerky or a bag or a box of popsicles or you know whatever. Um, that's really, really hard. Um, and, uh, it has to be a really good product. If I'm going to put my name on it, I, you know, I can't be one of those people who just sticks their name on something for a check. It just doesn't work for me. That being said, I do have an opportunity with a snack food thing that we're negotiating right now that I think will happen. And, um, but once again, <laughs> we're giving the majority of the money away that we raise through the product. Um, but uh, it just is a great way to be effective. If you notice, we've talked about so many different parts of our food industry burning down or on fire or about to catch fire. I'm talking about a negative way. When that happens, as an entrepreneur and business person, I can tell you uh, there is tons of opportunity. 
I said something, I'm not sure if you were uh, in the room at the time, but a couple hours ago I said something about um, the fact that we are, uh, I live in a constant state of alertness, try to be. Um, and my biggest advice to everyone is pay attention, like pay attention, especially when things are bad, pay attention, especially when things are bad, more so than when things are good. I never learn anything when things are good, but when things are bad, I learn a lot. So I've trained myself to pay attention. And I would encourage everyone to pay it to to pay attention right now because there are a lot of opportunities out there. If you want to be involved in food, look, restaurants may look different five years from now, but you know you can get involved in different ways to deliver uh, food technology and mechanisms uh, in robotics. If you're into engineering, if you're into nutrition and health, you can create the world's next superfood. Um, if you're into uh, good works, you can figure out a, uh, a way to um, feed the hungry around the world in a more efficient way. We, you know, we've got 50 different states. I think we have 47 different uh, uh, state uh, mandates about what you can and can't do with food rescue, which is why it's very diff difficult to have a national program of food rescue. Um, so maybe you want to run uh, for... Uh, for Congress in your, you know, as a 24 year old on one platform, food. Uh, this is the first, we just came out of the first presidential election in our history where food was ever brought up at a town hall or a debate. First one ever. Um, that, that was not lost on me. Um, it is of maximum importance. So I would say, uh, regardless of what you want to do with your life, you can become food driven or food adjacent. So I'm very, very bullish in our industries, even right down to, you know, cooking and serving. I mean, I just think it's all going to be there. It's just going to look a little different. And I just would encourage young people to pay attention. Wow, those are such great information you just gave. And thank you so much, Jennifer, for asking those questions. Well, time flies when we're having fun. We're way past our, a lot of time. And I can't thank you enough for your generous time, Andrew. You are my absolute favorite chef, my hero. And I say this as sincerely as I can. I think the difference between you and other famous chefs is that you have allowed the lessons of your past to guide the principles of your future through the gift of your storytelling. I just don't think there's any chef like that out there, Andrew. Mimi, so have you, you been day drinking again? <laughs> well, we had Anthony Bourdain, um, who's gone. But the only other person, other chef that I think at your level is Jose Andre, who's also uh, my hero. He's my hero, too, and I'm lucky enough to call him a friend. Jose, similarly, with a much different uh, life story... Uh, found himself at a crossroads and decided that he had to act his way into right thinking. He couldn't think his way into right acting. Like me, uh, he has predicated his life on service at a very public level. Um, and um, I, I think the world of Jose Andres, I think he's one of the finest human beings uh, on planet Earth. So, um, and by the way, a huge totally thank agree. you, huge thank you to everyone in the community who attended tonight. A thank you to uh, both you, Mimi, and to Rayhan. I, I can't. Uh, I'm very flattered that you would say such nice things about me, and that you would want to 
uh, talk to me for this long. Be extremely grateful uh, for the opportunity to uh, share ideas and thoughts uh, with such an engaged group of people. This has got to be the coolest thing I've done since joining Clubhouse. <laughs> oh, come on. No, seriously. So thank come you on. so much. And Rayhan, much. straighten her out when we're off the air, <laughs> would you? Mate, I've been no. sending her messages all, all night just telling her to straighten up. <laughs> and put that wine wow. down. You guys, you, guys, you guys are great. I've got to gotta go home and rescue my dog. Everybody have a, uh, a great rest of your evening, Okay. Oh, yeah, and Thank everyone, you be sure so to tune much. in to Family Dinners and What's Eating America. Get involved in the social media chats on Twitter, Facebook, and Andrew's Instagram. And let Chef Zimmerman know exactly what you thought of how his interactions inspired you tonight. Uh, and thank you to Chef uh, Jensen for the podcast as well. I think that um, hopefully we can get a, uh, a part two from Andrew Zim- Zimmerman's because obviously there's just so much more that he could share with us. Um, so thank you so much. Just a phenomenal, yeah, absolute phenomenal um, chef, man, human being. And it was just an absolute honor to be able to interview him. I know you feel the same, Chef Mimi. Um, and thank you to uh, Chef totally. Jensen for recording this podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.